Hey, and welcome to Vineyard Carlos podcast. It's great to have you with us. Today, we've got our senior pastor, James, continuing our series in Philippians, Joyful. Uh, it's going to be a great message, and so I can't wait for you to hear it. Enjoy. Hello, welcome. My name's James. Great to be with you today. I'm actually in a different location. I'm up in Nottingham. The glamour of my job. I'm up at Trent Vineyard with a whole load of leaders from across the Vineyard movement. and it's But it's brilliant to be able to be with you this morning. And I'm continuing in our series in Philippians today, which is such a beautiful book. Deeply, deeply encouraging. A book that talks all about joy. And in deepest, darkest January, I don't know about you, but I need some joy. And therefore, we're jumping back into this book. And I always think that it's ironic because Paul, who's preaching this book, is in prison as he preaches. And as he writes, sorry, as he writes this book, he's in prison. And yet it's full of joy. It's like the undercurrent that keeps coming, that keeps popping out. And 16 times during this book, this word joy is used. And so the series that we're in is called Joyful and how in the midst of incredibly difficult circumstances, Being in prison, Paul is still joyful, can still see what the Lord is doing. So we're going to be in chapter two today. And so if you want to turn there, but in order to jump into chapter two, I want to go first back into chapter one, verse 27. Last Sunday evening, I was preaching the evening service on this verse, which says this. Whatever happens, whatever happens in this life, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Conduct yourselves worthy, in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. I don't know about you, but it's the kind of verse that you could start each day with, isn't it? It's like, today, I want you to conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Live in such a way that through your mindset, your attitudes and your actions and the things that you actually do and live out, that you lift Jesus up. Now, this verse 127 really helps to frame this whole next section. And in some of the language that we've been using in our church to describe discipleship, to describe what it is that we're trying to be and do as disciples of Jesus, we talk about live like Jesus, following his example. And Paul is saying, live a life worthy of the gospel. Live like Jesus. You only get one life. Make it count. Don't waste your life. Don't fritter it away. Don't live for the wrong things. In golf, most of you probably don't play golf. My wife hates golf, but I quite like it. But there's something called a mulligan. A mulligan is when you, you put the ball down and you hit it and you're like, that's a terrible shot. So you go, I'm gonna take a mulligan, which means that one doesn't count. I'm just gonna hit another shot. Now, life we don't. We don't get a mulligan. We don't get another go. And Paul's exhorting his followers, he's like, live a life worthy. Francis Chan says this, he says, Our greatest fear in life should not be in failure, but succeeding in things that don't really matter. Wow. It's true, we could spend our whole life driving towards things that God's like, honestly, I don't really care about those things, that we've never surrendered, that we've never brought before the Lord. The one of the interesting things as you talk to people in the latter stages of their life is that they begin to look back on their life and reflect. 
it's sometimes even in middle ages as well, you look back and like, what, what have I actually achieved with my life? What have I succeeded in? What have I done? But Paul's saying, you know, the lens that you need to be looking, the mindset with which you need to look at your life is this, pleasing the Lord, living for him. So today I've called my talk Jesus's mindset because in order to do this, in chapter two, verse five, it says, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Jesus Christ. If somebody was to spend time with you, and let's say they were to come live in your house and they were to shadow you. They've come to live with you for a whole year, whether you're working, whether you're home, with the kids, unemployed, uni, whatever your situation is, I want you to imagine that somebody's lived with you for the last year. What would they see? If they spend time with you, what is it that they would notice? It's quite a big thought, isn't it? It's like, oh my goodness. Now, imagine that that person who's come to live with you is incredibly perceptive. Let's go one step further. Imagine that this person understands all of the relational dynamics at play in your life, because we all have lots of that. They understand your character, how you're wired, your past, your brokenness, your family, your marriage, your friendships, everything. They just get you. They spend time with you. They're like, I absolutely get you. In fact, they know you better than your you know yourself. They know what drives you, what breaks you, what brings you joy, how at the deepest level of your soul you tick. Well, that's what God's like, isn't he? He formed you. He created you. He knows every hair on your head. And the important thing to add is that this person is unreservedly and passionately for you. So not just do they spend time with you, but they get you and they're so for you that they want you to thrive. They want you to do well. They only want the best for you. It's quite challenging when we think of God like that, isn't it? Almost the intimacy of that. But that is how fully known and loved we are. But if, what does God notice about you? <laughs> this person that spends all of this time with you, that knows everything about you, what do they notice? Have you ever asked him? Have you ever asked him, you know, just stopped and been like, Lord, take my last year. What have you noticed? What have you noticed about my mindset? What have you noticed about my attitudes? What would he say? If you were to define it, if you were to ask the Lord, seems a bit presumptuous, but if you were to go to the Lord and be like, Lord, speak to me about my last year. How would you speak about it? What would you say? For me, I, I did this because it's easy to just be like, oh, you know, he's a great idea. So I was like, Lord, you know, what would you say about my last year? Like, what, what's my mindset been? And what have you seen? And he gave me the word battle, battle. That's what it's felt like for me, being in a battle. Because today we're looking at mindset and we're looking at a mindset that enables you to live a life worthy of the Lord and please him in every way. So you, what would some of that, what would that look like? It's a mindset and attitude of humility. And that might not be the first thing that you would have thought about when you thought about this, but that's what we're talking about. So let's read the passage. 2 verse 1, Philippians 2 verse 1. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition 
or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. And in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. And I'm going to continue on the passage, but I'm just going to start with that. What is it that Paul's talking about? He's talking about unity. It's kind of the driving thought and theme in this passage, this first section. In the previous passage, chapter one, Paul has been dealing with external pressures coming in on the community. Verse 28 of chapter one, without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. So there were people who were opposing them. And he's talking about how do you deal with outside voices that attack the community and bring division? And then as we come into chapter two, the focus changes from external to internal. He's talking about people inside the community. He's talking about internal arguing. And he's saying, do you know what? The church must not only take its stand against outside pressure, but they also need to look at their attitudes and actions within the church to overcome division so that they're not a house divided against itself. Why do they need that? For the sake of unity, for the sake of the gospel. And Paul opens this with a series of if statements that may be better understood as, as since statements or because statements. What I'm saying is their they're motivations. So he's like, if you have any encouragement, I think you could put it more strongly, because you have encouragement in Jesus, because you have comfort from his love, because you share in the spirit, because you have tenderness and compassion, because you have been given all of these things in Jesus, this, these are the blessings that you've been given. Then, as a result of these things that you've already been given, then make my joy complete by being one in spirit and purpose. There it is, again, that word joy, bang, then make my joy complete. Because we enjoy these amazing blessings as followers of Jesus that it's very, very easy to forget that he goes through. Let's act in a way that unifies us. And notice Paul's approach with the Philippians. He's not only warm and pastoral, but he's also quick to first mention the blessings of the gospel before beginning to address some of the tough stuff. Make my joy complete. Make me happy. Let my heart be warmed. So Paul is speaking as a pastor who wants to see the community thrive, the church thrive. And his longing for them is to love one another deeply, to be unified by your love for one another. May you, people know that you are my disciples. And Paul's like a father to the Philippian church. So he requests like-mindedness. So instead of having petty squabbles and rivalries, get your head straight and remember our identity and our common mission, why we exist, what it is, what binds us together. One of the vineyard phrases is keeping the main thing, the main thing. Don't get distracted on externals. Concentrate on the gospel and what unites us and what we're here to do. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves. Not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. Paul starts talking about this mindset of humility. In order to have unity, we have to have humility. He says in verse two, I want you to be unified. Verse 3a, he says, the reason you're not is because of this, this emptiness, this vain glory. That's how the King Version James of the Bible describes it. Emptiness, devoid of glory. Because of your emptiness, because of your pride, therefore, he says, starting in, continuing three, in humility, consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but to the interests of others. 
So let's just take a moment to look at this word, humility. What is it? Well, humility is a simple Greek word that means gentle, modest, deferential. Outside of the New Testament, this Greek word, whenever it was used in ancient Greek literature, was always derogatory. Because in the Greco-Roman society, to, to be deferential, to be gentle and modest was the attitude of slave. The old society would have valued strength, and this was seen as the opposite of strength. They believed social stability was based upon fear. People had to respect you. If they treated you with respect, then society would hold together. The only way for respect was if people feared you. So you can imagine how this, this value of this, this word of humility, this concept of humility would have been like so grating at that time, at that time, sorry. But yet in the Bible, this word or, or a version of it is used 270 times. And in almost every case, it is said in a positive way. So I just want to take a moment to stop and emphasize how incredibly important humility is. And I'll give an example with the gospel. Think about the gospel for a moment, the, the good news. If you come to God and say, I want to have a relationship with you, look at what I've done. Look at how amazing I am. Look at my accomplishments. God's going to turn you away saying, well, you don't know who I am. And you don't know who you are. You don't know what the cross of Jesus Christ means. But if you come say, oh, Lord, I'm sorry. I need your grace. I need your favour. I have nothing. There's nothing that I've done that can get to you. You are so glorious. You're majestic. But I'd ask that you save me and rescue me and forgive me. That's repentance. That's faith. You're saved by grace. You're saved through faith. Do you know what that is? In order for that to happen, there has to be humility. There has to be surrender. Surrender and humility go hand in hand. What is it that stops that is pride. The only thing that can kill you, the only thing that can destroy you eternally is a lack of humility. So when you frame it like that, when you think about that, the importance of humility in that context, you can lack almost any other thing. But not that. That's what connects you to God. So back to the passage. The Greek word for conceit is translated as vain glory or vain conceit in some versions. It's, a, it's an empty glory. It's a glory that doesn't exist. People are literally conceited over nothing. And we've all met people like this, haven't we? Just a lot of hot air. And you meet them and they spend their whole time just wanting to tell you about how amazing they are. It's like, oh, let, let me pick myself up. Let, let me make myself important. Hot air. The opposite of this is the humble person, the person of Jesus. He didn't have vain glory. He had all glory. And yet he made himself nothing for our sake. And I think it's important that we ask ourselves some questions here. And these are some of the questions around humility. You know, this pride, humility. Am I competing for people's attention and approval? Is that something really important when I get into a conversation trying to big myself up? Do I find it difficult or easy to rejoice in the success of others? When something goes really well for somebody else, maybe even something that we really wanted, how easy do we find that? Do I think I'm superior to people? Am I concerned with the needs 
of other people or actually does everything come back to me? They're pretty tough questions. There will never be unity in a congregation apart from people walking in humility. In order to have unity, you have to prefer one another. John and Ellie spoke about that when they were with us last week. They talked about, you, you know, Spirit of God ministering and God's moving on some people and others of you are not that bothered. You know, it's like nothing's going on. Why don't you pray for them? Why don't you prefer others? It's not all about you in that moment. Sometimes it's like, what does God want to impart to somebody else? Others have pointed out that humility is not thinking less of yourself, it's thinking of yourself less. I like C.S. Lewis's description of a humble person as he paints a picture of verses three and four. He says this, do not imagine that if you meet a really humble man, he will be what most people call humble nowadays. He will not be sort of greasy, smarmy person who's always telling you that, of course, he is nobody. Probably all you will think about him is that he seemed a cheerful, intelligent chap who took a real interest in what you said to him. If you do dislike him, it will be because you feel a little envious of anyone who seems to enjoy life so easily. He will not be thinking about humility. He will not be thinking about himself at all. That's from mere Christianity. Only when we possess the grace of humility will we serve others with spiritual sensitivity. A humble person thinks about others. An arrogant, self-absorbed person thinks only about themselves. In light of the importance of humility, John Stott says this, at every stage of our Christian development and in every sphere of our Christian discipleship, pride is the greatest enemy and humility is our greatest friend. Pretty strong stuff from Mr. Stott, isn't it? Pride is the greatest enemy. Why? It blinds us. It blinds us to the truth. It blinds us to what's going on right in front of us. It blinds us to the moving of the Holy Spirit in a place because all we can care about is ourself. So that's the background. That's humility that we're beginning to unpack. And then then we crash into Philippians 2, 5 to 11, which is particularly 6 to 11, one of the most amazing passages in the whole of the scripture. So verse 5 says this, and this is just translated in loads of different ways. Make your own attitude that of Christ Jesus. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. You must have the same attitude that Jesus Christ have. Have the attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. In the message, it says, think of yourselves the way Christ Jesus thought of himself. And have I in your relationships with one another have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, the mindset of Christ. That's what we're talking about today. The mindset of Christ, humility. He was a humble servant. It ran through whether translated this mindset This mind, sorry, mindset, frame of mind, attitude, it's essentially saying the same thing. Take on his mindset, live like Jesus. And as we prepare to look at these verses 6 to 11, which are in fact a hymn, keep this point in mind. As you reflect on it, ask yourself, is this my attitude and my mindset? Is this my way of life? Do I seek to get, get, get or give, give, give? Do I think in terms of getting or giving? Also ask this question, is this our mindset as a community? Verse six, this is 
some of the most beautiful part of scripture, this, this hymn that would have been sung, who being in very nature God, this is talking about Jesus, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant and being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him, lifted him up to the highest place and, and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. One of the most famous passages in scripture, the kind of thing I spent some time looking at in when I was studying theology. It's a, it's a hymn of praise to Jesus, to the greatness of of who he is and what he's done. So why would Paul do this? He's been talking about something very, very practical. He's been talking about kind of unity in the church, that there's been fighting, humility, and then all of a sudden he starts a hymn. Here's the reason why. Because you cannot work on humility directly. It's a byproduct of something else. So let me just try and unpack what I mean by this for a moment. Do you realise we've become less and less humble as the minutes have gone by here? <laughs> Do you know why? Because we've been talking about ourselves. In, our, in other words, it's impossible to work on humility directly. Humility is not thinking about yourself, but that's what we're doing. You mustn't try to work directly on humility. So if we're not to work directly on it, then what are we supposed to do? You're supposed to look at somebody else. This isn't just theology that's written here. This is a hymn. It's written to be chanted or to be recited or to be sung. What is Paul saying? Paul is saying the way that we're going to fix what is most wrong with us in our centre is to see Jesus. You have to have the theology, something that you praise God for, something that captures your imagination, who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. It's doctrine on fire, theology on fire in your heart. So humility is a byproduct of wanting something more than just to be humble. If you want to be humble, it's all about you. If you want to be humble, what? in fact, why would you want to be humble apart from scriptures tell you to be, except to say, well, I don't want to look proud. In order to be humble, we have to want him. You have to worship him. You have to see him. Humility is a byproduct of wanting something more than humility. It's wanting him first, wanting to be like him. It's a trajectory. In fact, somebody said this passage, verses 5 to 11, is, is actually a bit of a symphony in three movements. The first movement is incarnation. Though he was God, he became human. The second movement is atonement. Though he was human, he didn't just have a nice, comfortable life. He went to the cross and atoned for our sin. And then the third movement is up, is to be exalted. So you see these things, the incarnation, Jesus coming to earth, the atonement, he atoned for our sin and then he was exalted. Right in the centre of this passage, it says, who being in very nature God did not consider 
equality with God, something to be grasped, but made himself nothing. Do you know what that Greek word is? It's kenosis. Uh, it might not be familiar to, to you, but it says at the heart of it, he emptied himself. Though he was God, he emptied himself. And the big question that theologians have been asking for the last 2000 years of, well, okay, that's fine. He emptied himself. That's what kenosis means. But emptied himself of what? It doesn't say, it just says he emptied himself. Well, some people say, well, of course he was God. So he emptied himself of his deity. He emptied himself of divinity. But that's not what it says. It never says that he gave up being God. It says that he started being a servant. He didn't shed his divine nature. He assumed a human nature and more than that, he became not just a king. He didn't come in glory, he came as a servant. There it is, he emptied himself of glory, not his deity. So for instance, take a moment, think about it. If you were transported to heaven right now and you were to, be, you were to see Jesus as God, his goodness manifested, the expression of his glory, his beauty, his brightness, it would be overwhelming. You'd be like, oh my goodness. When you see something beautiful, when you see nature in all of its beauty, a beautiful mountain range, a waterfall, whatever it is out in nature, when you see deep beauty, there's an adoration that happens. It's so glorious, it evokes adoration. Jesus Christ came without that. Isaiah 53 says, he had no beauty that we should desire him. He emptied himself of glory. He emptied himself of beauty. He emptied himself of honour. He came, he was lonely and poor. There was nothing about him that attracted people. Eventually he was beaten, tortured, killed. He emptied himself of his glory. He came without his glory. He didn't stop being God, but he emptied himself of his glory. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place. Why is he resurrected? He was exalted. He was lifted up. Why is he up there? Because he saved us. He took our punishment upon himself. He redeemed a new humanity and he's leading us into the future. That's the trajectory. The way up is down. The way to be truly, truly rich in this life is to give away, it is not to hoard, it is to bless. The way to rule is to serve. The way to become infinitely happy is to not seek your own happiness, but to seek the happiness of others. The most glorious thing of all, the greatest form of glory is to give away your glory for somebody else. The, this word kenosis shows up twice. Look at it, you and I are desperately trying to fill ourselves with glory, but we end up empty. Jesus Christ, who had true glory, emptied himself so that we could be full. That's what the gospel is. Jesus Christ was treated the way that we deserve. So now that when we believe in him, we're treated the way he deserves to be treated. amazing the gospel isn't it that Jesus would empty himself come and live on this earth give away his glory to the degree that we know and believe this to 
the degree to which we're gripped and praising God and singing about Jesus. As we concentrate on him, as we look to him, as we see his attitude, his mindset, as we try and grasp the mindset of Christ. It's like, oh Lord, I wanna be more like you. And you see, we see this example. It wasn't about him. It was never about him. He gave his life for others. To give your life away. So in finishing, in order to live like Jesus, in order to have the mindset of Christ Jesus, in order to live as a unified community, we have to prefer one another. We need a God-given humility that serves others but it serves others. And this humility comes out of worship. It comes out looking at Jesus, being like, Jesus, fill me with your spirit. So let me pray and finish. And Jesus, we thank you that this is a rich passage. And sometimes we, I don't know, I, I'm just grasping more of it. Lord, I want to see Jesus. I pray that over our community, that we see a picture of Jesus, that we can live as humble servants of the King, that we look at the example, that we catch something of you as we look at you, that we would prefer one another. In Jesus' name, amen.